So that brings us to the dialogues. Job is stripped of everything. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 37, 24. So Job begins a dialogue. Now, we already talked about that. There are Job's friend Eliphaz, or Eliphaz, then Job, Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job, and I think they said the wrong order, but they go through this three times. And basically, they all have the same thing. First, Job, all the speeches, all the speeches, his major speech is, I am righteous, and I don't deserve to suffer. Therefore, God, you are unjust. And you're wrong for making this happen to me. That is his ultimate argument. So in chapter 9, verse 22, you see a little bit of this. This is where we start getting into the dense poetic language. But chapter 9, verse 22, it says, It is all one. That is why I say, He, God, destroys the blameless and the guilty. God is guilty of destroying people who are upright and pure. If a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks at the despair of the innocent. He even accuses God at mocking innocent people when they suffer. Like, ha, ha, ha. If a land has been given into the hand of a wicked man, he covers the faces of his judges. If it is not he, then who is it? So when wicked people take the land of innocent people, God covers the faces of judges because he doesn't care that they're being punished. And if he doesn't care, and if he's not the one allowing it to happen, then who is? Because he's the God of the universe. Talk about shaking your fist at Yahweh. And then you see this again in chapter 19. Oh, you see it lots of places, but I'm just highlighting a couple of places so you can see this all throughout the entire thing. Chapter 19, verse 12. Oh, verse 13. He has put my relatives far from me. My acquaintances only turn away from me. My kinsmen have failed me. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my servant girls consider me a stranger. I am a foreigner in their eyes. I summon my servants, but he does not respond. Even though I implore him with my own mouth, my breath is repulsive to my wife. I am loath because he's got boils. I'm loathsome to my brothers. Even youngsters have scorned me. So he says, everybody's abandoned me and everybody's against me. And I have called out to God, and he doesn't answer me, because he doesn't care. Chapter 30, verse 19, he has flung me into the mud, and I have come to resemble dust and ashes. I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up, and you only look at me. You have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you attack me. You pick me up on the wind, and you make me ride on it. You toss me about in the storm. I know that you are bringing me to death, to the meeting place for all living. Ultimately, in the end, Job constantly accuses God of being unjust. But then he he goes further. He says that God is petty. This is his biggest complaint. His complaint is basically, there is God is petty. There's got to be some minute teeny little technicality of a sin that I've committed. Something so minor in the law that not even the goodest, best lawyer could find. And, and, and uh, despite all my righteous acts, that is the one thing he's picked on. And he's now holding it against me and bringing all the suffering down on me. He is this legalistic, petty God who's punishing me for the most minute little violations that no human could even comprehend or even come to. Basically, what he's saying is this. The speed limit is 25, and you're going 25 and a quarter, and the cop pulls you over and gets you for reckless driving and puts you in jail. 
And you're like, seriously, 25 and a quarter? Does my speedometer even be able to do that? And that's what he's accusing God of. Petty technicalities, and that's the only thing God's getting them on. And that's what kind of a God does that? And you would say the same thing. You would stand in the court of law and you're like, what kind of cop pulls you over for going 25 and a quarter? Right? What the heck? There's no speedometer that's that accurate. And you would have a legitimate case and it would be, everybody would be like, what? And the judge would be like, you're wasting my time with this cop? Okay? And that's not an anti-cop thing. That's just an analogy. <laughs> that's what he's accusing God. Ultimately, and then in the end what he's saying is, I'm just, you're not. And this is what God's going to get on. You would condemn me in order to validate yourself. Now, this is self-righteousness. And Job is guilty of it. But here's the thing. Job never, ever walks away from God. Not once does he curse God. His wife puts on pressure and says, curse him and die. His friends say, you should sacrifice and get all those good things back. But not once does he curse God, not once does he walk away from God, and not once does he make sacrifices to try to get all the good things back. And in that way, Job stays devoted, loyal, and a man of integrity to God. Screw you, go to hell, I'm going to live my own life now, my way. It's called a high-handed sin in the Bible, because you're literally shaking your fist at God and saying, I'm done with you. Now you're like, wait a minute, that is really jacked up bad theology, Job. Like, wouldn't we count that as bad righteousness, bad integrity? And my question would be to you is, is your theology perfect? Does anyone in this room have perfect theology of who God is? Does anyone in this room have perfect thoughts all the time and perfect emotions and feelings all the time? But you would say, that's not really the point. Ultimately, the point is that I love God and pursue him and seek to obey. And when I don't obey and I have bad theology and I have bad thoughts and bad emotions and bad actions and I'm called out on it, I repent and I make atone for it and I pray for God to change me and sanctify me. And that's what a true relationship with God looks like. And if somebody is doing that, even if their theology is not perfect, their thoughts aren't always right and their emotions aren't always right and their deeds aren't always right, if we look at a man or a woman who's pursuing God and repenting and owning up to it and confessing it and seeking accountability and people to help them change and be sanctified and crying out to the Holy Spirit, we would say, that's a righteous person. Right? Because God declared Abraham righteous as he was like sleeping with other women to produce a child and selling her off into slavery and all kinds of stuff. And you're like, what the heck? And that's what you must understand. None of us are truly righteous. None of our theology is always right. Our questions are not always the most holy, pure things. Our thoughts, our emotions, and all that stuff are not always right. But if you're pursuing God and staying loyal and staying devoted and asking the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and make you a new creature in Christ, we would say that's loyalty, that's devotion, that's righteousness. And Job does that. He never walks away. He never abandons them. But then his friends kick in. So the friends, as he's saying all this, the friends are coming to him and saying this. They're saying, you are sinner. We all know that God is just. How can you accuse the divine God of the universe being unjust? Therefore, you must be unjust. And they're willing to say, you might have some technical sin that you violated. 
But that doesn't make God unjust. I mean, even the cop technically can still pull you over for going 25 and a quarter because it's still going over the speed limit. And so they would say, well, who cares if that's petty? He has every right to punish you for that. Therefore, he's just, and you still committed some kind of sin. So, Job, look deep into your heart and find the evilness there and confess it. Okay? And that's basically what they say over and over and over again. They represent the sages. They represent the wisest sages of the ancient world, the wisest wise men that there are. And they basically are arguing the retribution principle. They're saying that God always punishes the wicked and always blesses the righteous because his principle is 100% true and accurate and God is always just, therefore you deserve it. And we know that they're wrong because the narrator and God both told you that. The narrator and God both told you that. And they go on and on and on. Now they represent the ages. In the ancient world, the people worshipped the pagan gods. They believed that most of the time they suffered, they suffered for ritual offenses. Now let me explain this. You and I, we have a highly developed sense of morality, thanks to the law and the Holy Spirit and a Judeo-Christian worldview that has predominantly changed the world, even though we might be stepping away from that gradually in America. But we have an understanding that sin is way more than just blatant behaviors of drugs, alcohol, and sex, and, and slander, and murder, and rape, and all this kind of stuff, right? We understand that sin can be selfish desires and motivations and the way that we talk to people and, and when we hurt people for selfish gains or, or withholding kindness, all this kind of stuff. And the ancient world, before the law, they didn't know that. That was the beauty of the law. They had no idea what was right and wrong. The Canaanites had no idea what was right and wrong. And they had no idea why the gods were punishing them. And, and you think, like, most Americans are like, that law is ridiculous that God gave in the, 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 the book of Exodus. That is so unrealistic and that is so cruel. They probably hated God when they got that. They loved him. Can you imagine living with parents that you don't actually know what their definition of right and wrong is? They never explain it to you. And you get punished one moment and not another moment and another moment here. And you don't know why you're getting punished and when you're not getting punished. And there's no explanation to anything. And you end up living in total fear, walking on eggshells. And then one day a parent comes in and says, this is exactly what right and wrong is. Boom, 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 boom. This is exactly what will happen to you if you do this. Boom, 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 boom. And I will consistently hold you to that every single time. And the only times I'm inconsistent is when I show you mercy and grace because you repent. And here it clearly is. That'd be absolutely awesome. The law was a blessing. The ancients didn't have that. All they knew was, if I haven't murdered anybody, I haven't raped, I haven't stolen, and yet I'm suffering, then I obviously am not suffering for sin, because those are the only sins that there really are in the entire world. Because those ones are kind of obvious. When he killed my daughter, that kind of really hurt me, so that's obvious that's a sin. When he did this... And so they would list off, they could count them on one or two hands. And then they would say, okay, but I'm suffering. So I'm suffering because I must have eaten some kind of sacred food that belonged to the gods and I didn't know it. And now the gods are angry. Or there's a holy place over here that only the gods can step on in the woods. And I walked through the woods hunting an animal and didn't know that belonged to the gods. And I stepped on their holy ground and now they're ticked and they're punishing me. And that was their reason. Because if they couldn't think of the big five that they had done and they were suffering, then it must be some ritual offense. 
And so what they would do is they would go to the altar and they would sacrifice. And they would just be like, I don't know what I did, but I'm just going to throw all these sacrifices out and hope I hit something. And that God will be happy and then all my suffering will stop. And if I can't hit it like Abraham for 60-something years and I still have no kid, then I haven't found that weird, obscure ritual offense I've done. Can you imagine living 60 years, constantly sacrificing the gods, trying to figure out what minor ritual violation you committed so that they'll give you a kid? Why do you think they abandoned them so quickly and went to Yahweh? You're right. And then so the other thing, too, is you need the gods because you want their blessings because they control all of creation. But you also hate the gods because this is the kind of people they are. But the gods hate you and don't like you, but they need food. And they're too lazy to get their own food, so they want your sacrifices. So there's this codependency relationship where they each hate each other, but they need each other. And so that's the relationship. So that's what they represent. Now, they don't represent that mentality. They don't believe that Job has secretly violated some minute ritual offense. But they do believe that Job has violated some minor moral law. And they do believe they not necessarily have the same reason for why Job is suffering, but they do have the same solution. Make a sacrifice to make him happy, and then you'll get your good things back. So they don't believe the same as the pagans do, that you must have violated some minor ritual offense to God. But they do believe if you just make sacrifices, stick your quarter in the machine, and pull the lever down, God will start blessing again. So you're trying to pull the lever without putting the corner in, quarter in. And that's not going to make God happy. So put the quarter in, Job. Just confess that you didn't put the quarter in there. Job's like, I put the quarter in there. No, you didn't. Just put it in there. And then you just do it. Put the quarter in there, pull the lever. You'll get all your good stuff back and everything will be happy. Just appease him. And that way, they're kind of fitting into the adversary. And Job says, not going to do it. I'm not going to put the quarter and pull the lever just to get the good things. At the end of the book, he refutes both of them. I'm not going to curse God because he's evil and bad and just walk away. I don't like him right now. I don't trust him. I think he's unjust, but I'm still going to be committed to him. I'm going to still do you devoted to him. And he says, and I'm not just going to appease just to try to get good things again. And that's where Job succeeds. His theology is not always accurate. The way that he talks to God is not always good. He is definitely a little bit self-righteous. But in the end, he's saying, I'm committed to God. I'm committed to God. And that's what God is going to condemn, commend him for. God is going to commend him for that. And that's when the adversary is proven wrong. The adversary is proven wrong. Now, each one of them highlight things in a different way. They all believe in the retribution policy. But they argue it from different perspectives. They're all not just arguing the same thing. Eliphaz... When he's arguing, you have sinned somehow, just sacrifice to God and make him happy so you can get things back because he's just. He's arguing from his own personal experiences. So that's the retribution policy that he's arguing for. But when you read him, you get the sense that he's arguing more of, this is what I've experienced in my own life. And this is what I've seen in other people's life. He's that personal experience. This is absolute truth because this is what I've experienced. And we all know people like that. Or we are people like that that all their arguments and all their theology is based on their own personal experiences and what they've seen in other people's lives around them that they know or what they've seen in their own life. And so he argues that idea of God is just, you're not, just sacrifice and make him happy to get things back from his own personal experiences. Bildad comes from a different perspective. He's the philosopher. 
He's like the Plato or the Aristotle. He's arguing more as a philosopher. He's arguing from the philosophy of the ancient world. This is what all the philosophers say about the gods. This, when you read all the commentaries and all the theology books, this is what they all say. This is the latest and newest theology on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. Okay, I am a reader. I am a researcher. This is what they're saying. Now, none of these are totally bad. Your experiences of why God is this is a legitimate reason because God is an experiential God that meets you at places. Your research and studying as a logic and reason is a good way of coming. The problem is when that is the only thing that guides you all the time without calling into check with other things. Zophar is more black and white. He just like, it's just you know, black and white. It's this way it is. You made your bed, you lie in it. That kind of stuff. And so they're all arguing the same thing, but they're arguing from three different principles. And so in the end, Job does not curse God. He does not walk away from God. And he does not make sacrifices just to make God happy, to get his stuff back. But what he does say all throughout the book is, I want an audience with you. And that's what makes Job incredible. He's very arrogant, very demanding, very self-righteous when he says it. But at least he's saying, I want to talk to you, God. I'm not going to walk away from you until I've hashed this out with you. Even if you have a spouse or a friend who has things against you, you don't want them to have all these things against you. You do this and this and this and this, and therefore I'm leaving you. And they walk away and they leave you. And you're like, I didn't even know I was doing those things. We didn't even talk about those things. You much rather have a spouse that comes to you and lays all this stuff out and it makes you feel really horrible and really bad as they're spilling all your sins in front of you, but at least they're coming to you and spilling it out before you and saying, let's work through this no matter how hard it is, than for them to never tell you and just walk away. And that's what makes Job a man of integrity. Because even though he's judgmental, self-righteous, demanding and harsh, he's still saying, I'm not walking away because I want to talk about this. I want to know your answer. I want you to defend yourself. I want to bring my complaint to you. I want a conversation and a relationship. And that's what makes him righteous. That's what makes him righteous. Let's talk about Elihu. Elihu comes up and he's that younger guy. He's been sitting there the entire time. Nobody knew that he was there because he's so quiet and so young. And he comes up in basically chapter 37 and he says this. He says, look, I haven't said a word the entire time. Because you guys are wise and old and experienced and all this kind of stuff. And I thought you were wiser, so I just kind of kept my mouth shut as a young, ignorant person. But now I realize that you're all full of crap. He says, look, people, you know Job is righteous. I mean, what person brings all his kids forward and makes sacrifices for them just in case they committed a wrong? You know he's righteous. You know he doesn't deserve this. And you know that God is just. Job, come on, stop accusing them. Why are you even still with them if you actually truly believe that? So he brings the retribution policy forward, but he alters it. He modifies it. He says, perhaps God punishes you for sins you're about to commit. He's not punishing you for sins that you have committed. You're right, Job. You haven't committed a sin. But he knows you're going to commit one day. So he's punishing you right now to expose that sin now so you can deal with it now rather than waiting until it's too late. And what sin would he be punishing you for, Job? Oh, I think you're self-righteous. So God knows you're going to commit this self-righteous act. 
because you just did it. So you decide to go ahead and punish you now so that you'll realize that you're self-righteous so you can deal with it. So God sometimes punishes you from going deeper into the sin. He's more right than anybody else because sometimes God does use suffering to expose bad behavior and bad thinking, refining you like gold. But God doesn't just punish you for things that you haven't committed yet. Because that's not just God. God operates within time. For example, did God know that Abraham was a righteous man and would sacrifice his son? Yeah, because he knows the future, right? Then why does he say, now I know? Because Abraham and God didn't know together. See, God already knew it. He knew the future. And he knew it when he called God, Abraham, to sacrifice his son. He'd be willing to do it. And he knew he was going to stop him. So he didn't have to say, now I know. Like, I I was on the edge right there for a moment, Abraham. What he meant was, I'm only going to bless you when we both experience this together. I'm only going to punish you when we both experience this together. And, and we're only going to truly know this about a relationship when we've both done it together. And that's what God is saying. It's not really just of me or I don't do things until we've done it together. So I'm not punishing you for the neighbor that you're going to rob 30 years from now. And I'm not going to punish you right now for it. Because that's not something you've experienced. This isn't the minority report where we arrest you before you've even committed crimes because you're about ready to. That's where Elihu's wrong. 